So let's start with the first of two, I think, dominant mindsets that exist as people try to understand sport today. Okay, I think these are sort of overwhelmingly the things that people find their mindsets being driven and shaped by um, when we think about sport. This is the path, and I've already fallen into the trap, right, by using keyword, right, but the path of discipline, right? So our first logical conclusion about how we should engage with sport is discipline, right? And then, I mean, again, I did it without even thinking about it because it's just such a strong approach to talking about this stuff, you know, calling it the path, right? And the idea that there's a particular direction, right? There's a progression. And the concept of a path implies that anything outside of that path is wrong, that it's incorrect. Only the path will efficiently and effectively get you where you want to go. And the implication of a path is if you're off of the path, you're lost. And the path is an extremely narrow thing. It is difficult to find. It is difficult to follow. It doesn't necessarily move in the direction that you would expect it to. But nonetheless, the path, nonetheless, the path is the path. And that is the tool that is going to get you to where you want to be. Now, in this discipline model of sport, what is the ultimate validation that falls at the end of the path? So I think we can look at this, right? Discipline is about the outcome, all right? And the outcome of discipline in sport is to become a legend, right? Which sounds a little bit silly. But, you know, a lot of the stuff about sports are silly things that we don't see as silly because we have just come to unconditionally accept that style of thinking, right? So a legend in sport would be people who accomplish singular feats in athletics that gives them cultural permanence, right? So like maybe one legend, right? So to continue with our sort of trap of falling into uh, traditional Western, you know, Greek-centric ways of thinking about history. Oh, well. Um, But Milo of Crete, right? Milo of Crete is sort of the original great athlete in Western culture. Okay. All right. And I'm sure other cultures too. And the goal of this podcast isn't, at at least not for this episode, isn't to necessarily research um, myths or cultural beliefs about, you know, original um, you know, athletic or athletic-like physical achievers, okay? But I would, I'm speculating, but I imagine there are benchmarks like for this in other cultures around the world, benchmark figures like this, because sport and, and play and games are prevalent in human cultures all over the world too. But Milo of Crete, you know, supposedly um, won, you know, the wrestling event at the Greek Olympiad, I want to say maybe on five different occasions, right? Sort of this like all-time great, you know, all-time, all-time great. You know, I the phrase goat, right, is one of these cliches that's just taken on a life of its own, right? And he would be the original Greek goat, right? The original goat of athletics. And actually one story about Milo Crete that I came across in my you know, surface level Googling um, is that apparently he died 
trying to pull this sort of like move that made me think of Captain America, um, because apparently he was trying to split a, a length of wood in half using only his hand. So just trying to rip it in half. And there's that scene in the one of the Marvel movies where, you know, Captain America is splitting wood and then he picks up the log and he just rips it in half with his hands. You know, so I guess, you know, Milo of Crete wasn't up to the standard of Captain America because supposedly his hands got stuck um, and the, the farmer uh, that he had, you know, had allowed him to use his wood to try this feat. I guess didn't come back in time or whatever, and uh, Milo of Crete uh, got stuck and was eaten alive by wolves or something like that. Uh, so, which I think is just further proof that exercise is bad for your health. But you know, this seems like sort of a, a just totally insane, pointless story. Like, what are we supposed to understand from that, right? Because is Milo of Crete even real? I don't know, right? I mean, at a certain point, like we're sort of taking at. Uh, value of the historical record that certain figures or events right actually happen right but if we understand in greek culture that um there's a history in greek theater uh the tragedy um of greek theater is always the emergence of hubris right leading to nemesis in hellenic theater and you start to see the poignancy of the story you know at least from their worldview right maybe hubris isn't something that's as an important of a concept for us today in a culture as, as it was in, you know, Hellenic culture, or as it was in Athenian culture. But, you know, for Milo of Crete, right, you know, trying that one additional thing, right, and ultimately a very pathetic end to the Olympic wrestling champion to be eaten alive because his fingers are trapped in wood. And I think the futility, right, of that pursuit of legendary status, because all it really takes is maybe that one story, right, of the end of Milo of Crete to tear down all of the value of the myth-making of his legendary athletic feats, right? And, and that is the hubris, right, leading into that nemesis. You know, what about other attempts to become legendary? Because I think what the story of Milo of Crete is making us question right out of the gate is that discipline's promise of following this path and achieving legendary status is like not maybe actually attainable, that legendary status isn't really real. And if it's not real, then that really calls into question a central premise of the discipline approach, which is that you're using discipline to pursue something that is like not worth pursuing because it might not exist. Well, let's look at some other examples from our period of modern sport, right? We're saying 1900 onward is modern sport. So Bill Russell... Um, played professional basketball for 13 years. 11 of those years, he was the leading athlete. And I think on one occasion at the end of his career, he was also the coach of his team too, um, won the league championship for the NBA. He also won an Olympic gold medal. Um, and this feat is used to prove, right? And Bill Russell died this past summer, summer of 2022, and has caused a lot of, and I think positive desire to memorialize or remember, you know, this person. I also think exploit this person for the marketing potential for the NBA. And that's something else we want to pay attention to is how does uh, the way we talk about sport, how does that feed into the economics of sport? How does that feed into creating markets for sport? 
But people have talked more about Bill Russell. And what has happened is it's become clear, and you've heard stuff like this has been around before, but with the rise in focus on this person, the fact that he won 11 out of 13 years is used to prove that he wasn't significant. So the fact that what he achieved was so legendary somehow now is evidence that it wasn't legendary, which is illogical, right, in a way. But, you know, people saying, well, you couldn't do that unless it wasn't hard to do that because nobody's doing that now, right? As if somehow the world of 2000 to 2022 is so different from 1960, you know, that's another one of our biases is we always feel more modern and more advanced than people who lived whatever. I like it in 2022 when I hear, you know, like teenagers talk about like, you know, oh, 55-year-olds discovering technology for the first time. And this sort of bias and this ageism that we have and, and people use this idea of like, oh, people are old or whatever. It's like, you know, I think that's just absurd, you know, the idea that somebody in 2022 who's in there, who's 55, well, you know, in 2000, they were, right, 33, if I'm doing my math correctly, which would, you know, first time for everything. But like, those aren't people who are like, you know, Luddites, right? People aren't Luddite anymore, right? Technology, the internet, you know, is no longer this like generational divider, right? Like basically everybody uses that, you know, and is fluent in that unless they've, unless they've essentially chosen not to be. And that's their choice is being made on a different level rather than somehow a lack of ability, right? But this idea that people come out of the wilderness and, you know, discover stuff, you know, is a part of this idea of this, you know, as old people, quote unquote, old people, which I don't subscribe to that notion, but like is also a part of this idea of like dismissing things that aren't contemporary. Emil Zatopek, 1952 Helsinki Olympics, 5,000 meter, 10,000 meter marathon, gold medal, gold medal, gold medal. He set 22 unofficial world records per the IAAF and another 21 unofficial, quotes, quotes, unofficial world records. So really, we can say that he set basically 43 world records. Instead of being celebrated, you know, Zatopek is basically not remembered at all, right? Like, and you could argue, and it would be an argument because there's no way to really prove this, but you maybe you could argue that, like, is Zatopek pushing boundaries of absolute performance? Is it easier to see runners pushing boundaries of absolute performance than, say, basketball players? Not because runners are doing that more than basketball players, but because of the way we measure running with a stopwatch is so much more like simplistic and essentialist about what is the nature of that activity, right? It's much easier to compare. And all people do is they just say, well, you know, Zatopek was running these times and these people are running these times. It doesn't matter. Okay, so another person, legendary status, wins three gold medals. The fact that they won three gold medals proves it doesn't matter. So this whole discipline, you know, leads to, you know, dominance, you know, ultimate performance and the payoff for that is legendary status. Doesn't really seem that useful. Okay, Pavo Nermi. Let's go back a little further in time. Pavo Nermi, the flying fin, distance runner, active 
the 1920s were sort of his Olympic period, did maybe some racing into the 1930s, to be fair. But um, nine gold medals, three silver medals across the 1920 Antwerp, 1924 Paris Olympics, which is where he won five gold medals, and then the 1928 Amsterdam Olympics. And fun fact, Nurmi carried the torch into the stadium at the 1952 Helsinki Olympics, where Zadopek won his triple gold. But it's probably fair to say that in the world of endurance running, unless they add a variety of events um, to the Olympics, which would be a total shock, but Pablo Nurmi probably never going to be eclipsed, right? Nine gold medals in distance running across three Olympics. You know, to do that today, you basically have to win the 5,000, 10,000 marathon, three Olympiads in a row, which would be absurd, right? Nobody's ever won those three since done anything like that since Zadopek and he did that at one Olympiad. And apparently Zadopek was a scrub, right? Um, you know, Pavel Nermi, you know, must have been a scrub too, um, you know, because he was running even slower than Zadopek, right? So we can find ways to dismiss all of these people. So all of these feats, by the way, I think would be unassailable feats. Bill Russell, Zadopek, Pavel Nermi, Right, what a random collection of people. But that's things that came to mind for me when I sort of started thinking about this. And I guess the Bill Russell thing is coming from maybe watching too many um, basketball games in my free time. But these unassailable feats, right? If these people are can be dismissed and their feats are used, ironically, the things that are supposed to prove them as legendary are used to prove that they're a joke. Like, what does that suggest about the nature of unassailable feats? Like, does achieving any of that actually matter? And the reality is it's okay to totally uh, be forgotten because we're all going to die. And when we're dead, we're not going to know that nobody remembers us, right? It seems important or meaningful. It seems like it has social value to be remembered, right? But, you know, it doesn't matter because we're just not going to be, right? And we're not going to be able to perceive it. But nonetheless... When we're here, when we're alive, we've constructed this as meaningful, right? Now, maybe, maybe it's not okay. We think about the market aspect of this. Maybe it's not okay for the people who are trying to turn your identity into some sort of like an intellectual property, right? And you're trying to use that like the NBA, you know, is celebrating Bill Russell, but they're also, it's also in their economic best interest to sort of promote the idea of legendary stuff, right? Um, but their achievements, right, are used to drag them down and dismiss them as irrelevant, right? And in their course of their lifetimes, people are, are being dismissed, right? You're not even, they're not even making it to the finish line of life, you know, maintaining that status. It's, you know, it, 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 victory is truly quite fleeting, right? And, and that discipline approach that you apply discipline to achieve victory, and then if you achieve the ultimate victories, you become the ultimate champion and you're a legend. But what's the point? Being a legend isn't really a thing. It doesn't actually play out the way we think it has. And humans haven't evolved over time either. It's not like there's, that, there's not much validity in saying that we're superior to these people. Okay, Humans have, haven't evolved since the time of Pablo Nermi. That's absurd. People are as athletic now as they were you know, probably in the first days of recorded human history, people are probably as athletic, right, in terms of their physical potential 
12,000 years ago as they are today. What's changed as nutrition, lifestyle factors, and training. Those are the things that have changed, right? And that's why we can perceive or create this illusion of people being so different, of people looking so different, but that's not actually what's happened. So is that really a worthwhile goal, right? And if that's the goal of discipline is to become legendary and you can't become legendary, what does that say about discipline, right? Because discipline is a complete the process approach to athletics. It means that when you're trying to be an athlete, the goal and the purpose and the value of being an athlete is to be able to have achieved certain things in the past. It's not to experience something in the moment. Because that thing in the moment, right, isn't desirable by this model, okay? Because it's an act of discipline, right? And so what we say here, right, is we can say that this is kind of like a hero's destination, right? And I'm kind of making fun of the, you know, referencing, right, I guess to Joseph Campbell and literary, you know, analysis everywhere, right? The hero's journey. We're saying when sport and this discipline model, it's about the destination, Right, everything's about getting to the outcome, and our value for the outcome is what keeps us on the path. Despite the adversity that might be involved in following that path, we commit to that path because of the core belief that the path is the only destination to the outcome, which is, you know, the outcome being legendary status. And I don't even know if that's true, right? And that's something in this whole podcast, not just this episode, but overall, like exploring, like, how do you get from point A to point B is like a really complicated thing. And discipline might not be the answer to that. Because even if you conquer, right, that aspect of things, right, even if you conquest and you become legendary, then you just transfer into this new form of competition, which is like competitive legacy. So if you're Michael Jordan, you're going to be producing documentaries like The Last Dance, you know, while everybody's trapped at home, you know, with COVID and conveniently has nothing to do but watch that. You know, at least I hope I'm remembering the release of that. It seemed to me like that's when people had watched that, but maybe I'm wrong. But, um, you know, the p- important thing about that is that it's about keeping yourself in the public consciousness because what you did only matters based on how you are perceived, right? What you di- did only matters based on how you're perceived. And your legacy isn't permanent, even if people build a statue of you, right? Nothing has permanence. We dig up... In archaeology, right, people dig up statues of things. We have no idea what these are supposed to be. Are they symbolic? Are they people? Are they interpretive? Are they literal? Like, we don't really know, right? So your, your legacy is competitive. You never get out of that space. So we've defined what the goal of this discipline process looks like, and we've called that into question. It seems pretty clear that this legendary sporting achievement benchmark is totally unreasonable, totally unrealistic. But how? Like, how are we supposed to do this? Even if this was true, how are we supposed to do it? Well, this is the path of discipline. Here's a fun quote. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. So this is from football coach Vince Lombardi, a sport that I know basically nothing about. And I, full disclosure, I have no interest in really knowing that much about. It doesn't interest me that much. Um, respect, I mean, and I respect other people's interests, right? We're not all going to enjoy the same sports. So for me to make a reference to Vince Lombardi is maybe a little uninformed, but this quote, right? Fatigue makes cowards out of us all, right? It seems to me like this football coach is equating fatigue to cowardice, right? And I do know enough about football to know that 
Vince Lombardi is like a really important coaching icon, right? So this is, a, you know, if he says this, it's going to be celebrated, right? It's, it's, an impo- it's a key insight. It's a truism, right, within that sports culture, within their vernacular. So fatigue, right, is being cast as the opposite of masculinity. Fatigue is for people who are weak. You must fight fatigue and cowardice. And the reality is you can't fight fatigue indefinitely. That's just an idiotic concept. You can't hold your breath forever. You, can't work into a, you can work into a state of distress. But at a certain point, you'll just fail, right? And that's not an escalation of cowardice, right? Now, we do calculate, essentially in our mind, you know, how much can I you know, follow? And people get hurt. Like they hurt their bodies, they injure them, sometimes in ways that can't be reconstructed all the time, you know, in the pursuit of like disproving their cowardice, right, of asserting their masculinity, right? But it's, you know, the fatigue wins, right? Immortality isn't a thing. The body breaks down under stress and over time, right? Um, And pacing yourself, knowing when to pull back, right, and chill out is so important. You can't will yourself to assert to any level of performance. But we start to see from this quote, right, I think a really good insight into what the path of discipline in sport is, right? Because it, it's asceticism, really. It's a path to enlightenment. And that path to enlightenment is just about, right, giving up more and more stuff, right? We can think of it, you know, as like sort of something make, make some of us think of like uh, Buddhism and the pursuit of nirvana, right? And meditation and these, you know, Buddhist aesthetics, surrendering, things of the world, right, in order to, you know, reach that state of enlightenment. It also makes me think of Protestant predestination, right, that we signify, you know, that it's sort of like some of us have it and some of us don't. Some of us have the capacity to be disciplined, some of us don't. And this, you know, Protestant predestination, right, idea is that, well, the people in the community who are these saints, right, who are going to, you know, ascend, so to speak, right, they signify that you know, through the holiness of their existence, right? Their actions prove this, right? So the people who um, have discipline are disciplined and the people who don't uh, have discipline aren't disciplined. And there's just this like distinction and we want to fall on the desirable side of that. And that then becomes about like, I am superior relative to other people. So discipline isn't really this like noble you know, you know, version of like um, humbling yourself. It's not a exercise in humility. It's an exercise in narcissism because you want to become this legendary person and then you're going to have to defend and you're going to want to defend the public perception of that after your sporting career is over, right? Which is ironic because the whole goal is to just be done with a sporting career, right? The value of the sporting career is for the outcome. And we create this idea of like, I'm, you know, this like, you know, you know, highly, um, you know, refined, you know, mind that abandons, you know, and steps away from all of the things that drag the rest of you guys down so that I can become this incredible performer, right? But that's really about being superior to everybody else. That's not an act of humility. It's also the idea that achievement is somehow inherently the opposite to core human nature. That like left to our own natural states, people won't achieve or do anything. That people will just sort of like vegetatively exist in this unproductive state, right? That they'll be off the path and they'll be 
lost, you know, to society, to themselves, to outcomes, to progress, to everything. And, you know, the idea we hear the talk about historically, too, frankly, is this idea that the reason why things have changed over time is because people who have demonstrated unique discipline, right? This idea that uniqueness, legendary status, superiority, blah, blah, blah. And feelings are sometimes defined as the enemy. I saw this incredibly moronic thing on Instagram um, the other day, some Andrew Tate-inspired or, you know, quote, overlaid montage. And the gist of it is making the argument, which is totally bullshit, um, that women have feelings, but that men don't. It was like, let the women have the feelings, and the men don't have the feelings, and men did all of these things. It is like the most uninformed, like, juvenile interpretation of, you know, how progress in history has passed. You know, men built Rome or whatever. It's like, first of all, like, and you have a patriarchal society and you don't give other people the opportunity to do things, they don't have the opportunity to do things. You know, why was Joni Benoit the first woman to win the Olympic marathon? Because women weren't allowed to run the Olympic marathon prior to 1984. Duh. You know, and not to, that doesn't take away from Joni Benoit being an athlete, but it's just when you try to understand these things, you know, we, we need to look at them in an authentic way, right? Another aspect of discipline is that we have to sacrifice. And uh, there's a book Matt Kofleski came out with about his sort of training and how he approaches it and how he thinks about it. Um, and he talks about uh, sacrifice. And he says that to him, you have to sacrifice things, but that to him, it doesn't feel like sacrifice because he's doing what he wants to do. I think that's not an invalid point, but it's still subscribing to the discipline asceticism thing that we have to sacrifice, we have to give up to attain enlightenment. That idea of sacrifice still being there, right? That take everything that makes you feel good and just put it on the altar and let the blood run out of it, right? People praise each other for being the hardest worker. People um, have to justify when they do things that they like. There has to be some sort of justification of that or there's like a confessional tone to it. Like, oh, I I did this thing even though I probably shouldn't have because it wasn't in my best interest. And... Like, this kind of idea of that discipline is this, and that we sort of, well, what's the observation and the logic? Well, the observation is these people are legendary, and they approach in this disciplined way, so then the logical conclusion is you need to be disciplined to do this. But then, if that was true, what should we be able to prove? We need to be able to rationally prove that discipline leads to legendary status. And when we prove that it doesn't, when we prove that legendary status isn't this absolute thing, then that doesn't really hold weight, right? That pulls it apart. And then there's also the question of like, well, what are the actual methods that result from discipline? And this is a later podcast topic, but what are the methods that result from the discipline approach? Because when we talk about sport in the discipline way, certain things are going to make sense to us. Certain things are not going to make sense to us. We're not going to do things now unless they meet the criteria of sacrifice, unless we meet the criteria of abandonment. Unless we can do these things, we're not going to be able to, you know, get to where we want to be. Now, there's another part of all of this that I think is really important, um, and it's not to take away from the, the sort of drama, right, that we're sort of unfolding as we seek to unravel right, this myth of discipline and athletic achievement, and you could probably apply it to achievement and performance in other aspects of life. It's also possible that the goal here, right, is to become financially affluent 
right? That's the path of sport. And Milo of Crete, I'm pretty sure, would have, if he did what he did, would have greatly enriched himself and improved his status and standing in his community, you know, with all of his success. I mean, winning the Olympiad was a significant cultural achievement in Hellas, historically. So it would perhaps be, you know, elitist and classist to suggest that sport should only be about the joy of sport, right? Because that's this idea that, like, everybody is stable and well-off and financially grounded and their, you know, well-being is achieved, et cetera, et cetera, and they have the things that they need and they have a, a reasonable serving of the things that they want and that sport is something we should be doing for joy. You know, and that's very privileged. That's like, you know, uh, hurtling um, over cups of champagne in chariots of fire, right? Like, it's just not, uh, sorry, glasses of champagne, right? We don't, heaven forbid, we would never serve champagne in cups. But, right, hurtling over glasses of champagne, right, in the field behind our, you know, country estate in chariots of fire, right? You know, it's easy to say sports should be about joy if you're socioeconomically advantaged in society, and you've always had access to leisure. And for you, leisure time is basically a human right. We should add that to the Bill of Rights. Frankly, maybe we should. It would be really interesting to see what the society-changing impact of that would be. But if for your people are operating on the level of like your sport represents this like lottery-winning level contrast between life before and life after athletic success, now we're talking about something different, right? But that doesn't mean that Discipline is this path for people who are looking for that life-changing outcome through sporting achievement. The point is that discipline as the path might not, if it's not effective, it's not effective for anybody. There isn't this like cohort of people who are doing it for money for whom it does apply. And then the rest of us, because we're not doing it for money, it doesn't apply. We don't want to do that. I think that mindset is not where we're looking to go with this. Because the argument to explore is, like, is discipline, either it's the most effective or it's just a bunch of made-up crap because it sounds cool. And that piece, making stuff up because it sounds cool, happens a lot, right? Because there's also a marketing approach. This is the product and the branding association with stuff that we want but we can't get is so powerful, Right? And so the market pushes the desire for the discipline narrative back on us. And I think there's a, you know, a lot of athletic con artistry that goes on. You know, not just athletes you know, endorsing products and you know, being like, oh, this foot scraper really blah, blah, blah. You know, and I understand, right? You're trying to earn income you know, on the basis of your identity as an athlete. And you know, that's not in and of itself an ignoble aspiration. But you're also lying to people. Right? Or you're lying to yourself. And you could ask which one of those is worse. But like, so part of this discipline thing is like discipline is difficult to attain, right? And so the marketing concept becomes like, well, like when you add this to discipline, you achieve the outcome. And so it's, it becomes very defensible as a marketing strategy because it's like, well, you can't disprove the value of this because you didn't apply the discipline method. And that's the context in which it works. And nobody's explicitly saying that, but that sort of seems to be the messaging that's involved here. So the approach, right, of discipline is the approach that's forced on us by the consequence of perspective. Okay, the consequence of perspective 
forces us, right, to see things in a particular way. And we observe the narrative of discipline and we logically conclude that that's effective, right? We logically conclude that that's effective. And maybe what we want to be questioning is whether or not that is the right way to think about this. Because when we do it in a logical way, we're ignoring that additional step of rational reason. That was the reason why things exploded and developed. Okay, that's the reason why things exploded and developed in the way that they did. Because people applied rational thinking. And if we take that concept and we say, well, how can we apply this in our own life? How can we apply this as athletes? What does this mean? Well, it means that we need to look at what we're doing and we need to think about it in a rational way too. How can we think about this rationally? Right? Not logically. We can use logic to hypothesize, but then go out and try to say, does this really make sense? Right? Can we really see this in a different light? So when you're out and when you're doing things and you're trying to you know, consider you know, a training method, a training strategy, approaches and interventions to sport, how should you think about or organize your lifestyle relative to sport, I think what's going to be most valuable for us is going to be to try to think rationally. And if you're applying discipline, right, asceticism, giving things up, sacrificing, right, abandoning things that make you feel good, I would suggest that you start to question that and challenge that. Because things that make you feel good are important. Now, if it's good to you, it must be good for you, not sure that's a really good point of view either. But like the need to feel good as a person is going to be essential here. All right, so next time we're going to talk about the other point of view, which is the fuck it point of view. The second logic. Thanks for listening today. First episode of Black Cat Runs podcast where we try to explore how do we think about sport? How can we train? How can we perform? How can we improve? How can we get value out of what we're doing? We try to ask some interesting questions. We try to think through this stuff in some different ways. The goal is to be thought-provoking, not to present absolute rules. Thanks for giving some time to this today. I hope this has been interesting. I hope it motivates you to think about this, to apply this, and I hope it motivates you to listen to the next episode. See you next time. Bye-bye.